Father, we praise you that you know us, you love us, you want a relationship with us, and you want us to live with you forever. Lord, Lord, those are all wonderful things. We're so grateful for them. Lord, my heart's prayer now is that we would grow in what you have for us, that we would walk by faith in every way that you lead us. Open our hearts and our minds now. Fill us with the Holy Spirit as we open your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We just got done with a 12-week sermon series where the theme was discipleship. The idea was walking with Christ and helping others walk with Christ. That's job number one and job number two for us as followers of Christ. We're to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to help others love Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we finished up that 12-week series. But as I said last week, we're not done with that topic. We'll never be done with that topic here. That will consume us for the rest of our existence. The idea, that's what we're about here at Cornerstone Church, walking with Christ, helping other people walk with Christ. That's what we want to do. As we move on now to a new sermon series, we haven't dropped that topic. I just want to make that clear. We're going to study the book of 1 John in the Bible, but we're doing it because we want to be disciples because we want to learn what it means to follow Jesus more closely and help others follow him as well. So, like I like to do every summer, I take a a book of the New Testament, and we're going to walk through it. This is going to be a nine-week series through the book of 1 John. And as I always say, you will learn much, much more from this if you're studying this material on your own. Now, you've kind of lucked out on this one. This is a short book of the Bible, only five chapters long. You can read it easily in 20 minutes. But I encourage you, over the course of the next nine weeks, to be reading and rereading this book, figuring out what it is that God has to say to you about how you can better walk with him. And one specific assignment I want to give you, I want you to pick out a key verse from this book. You can either pick out a favorite verse, or what I'm going to try to do is to pick out a verse that kind of summarizes the whole book. And and I think I'll let you know next week what my verse is, but that's kind of my homework assignment for you this week. Read through the book, pick out one verse that you think kind of describes the whole book. 1 John has some wonderful things to teach us about what our relationship with God should look like. Let me use an illustration here. If you have a car, you know that it should run, right? But sometimes your car doesn't run. And sometimes your car gets old and things start to go wrong with it. And sometimes your car gets to 100,000 miles or 200,000 miles. And it's a good idea at those landmarks to take your car in for a checkup. Especially for me because I know nothing about cars. I... I know where the gas goes, and I can drive. That's about it. But uh, I had a car a couple years ago that passed the 100,000-mile mark, and I took it in because, like, I have no idea. Here, you know about cars? Tell me what I need to do. Tell me what's wrong. could be anything. So I don't know what all they do there. They do things like they check your transmission. They check your belt. They check your whatever rod. I don't even know. But they check these things. And at the end of it, they might have some tips for you. Like, here's some things that you can do to increase the performance of your car. They may also say something to you like, there's a problem we found in your transmission system, let's say, and it's, it's about a $1,200 fix. And that's not a fun one to hear, right? You're kind of hoping that he would say, everything's perfect, just, you know, add this $3 additive and you'll be fine. But it might come back that there's something wrong. Now, you could say, oh, man, why did I go in for that? 100,000 miles checkup, all all it's going to happen is it's going to have to pay 1,200 more bucks. But wouldn't you rather know about it? Wouldn't you rather know what's going on in your car so that you can fix it 
And if there is something severely long, at least you can address it. Similarly, the book of 1 John tells us a lot. It's like a checkup for our hearts. I want you to view this book this way, that God wants us to have a dynamic, close walk with him. But there's some things in this book that can be like, they can serve as diagnostic checks for us to help us figure out what's going well in our walk with God and some tips that we can do better and some things that might not be going well. So that's how I want you to view this book overall. The Apostle John is writing it so that the people can grow in their relationship with God. But perhaps even more basic than that, the book of 1 John teaches us something really simple, that we can have a relationship with God. Now, those of us who have known the Lord for a while, we might gloss over that point. But it's actually an astonishing thing if you think about it, especially if you think about it from somebody who, from the perspective of someone who doesn't know God or from the perspective of somebody who's seeking and just wonders what's out there. The book of 1 John teaches us that we can know God. So I want to ask the question right after that. Do you know God? The easy churchy answer is, of course I know God. Come on. I, I go to church. I've got this stuff all figured out. But do you really know him? Do you meet with him daily? Do you live your life according to his ways? Do you hear from him and follow him? This book of the Bible teaches us that we can have that sort of a relationship with God where we walk with him and hear from him. What should we expect in our relationship with God? What is Christianity all about? This book is meant to help us address these questions about what it means to know God and what it means to continue in our relationship with him. When we think of all that the Bible teaches us about how we can walk with him, the question I want to ask now at the beginning of this series is, how are you doing at that? We're starting this 100,000-mile checkup of our hearts. How is your heart doing? Now, this book is called 1 John because it's one of three little letters at the end of the New Testament written supposedly by the Apostle John. And this book has a lot of things to teach us about what's going on in our lives. And it may, again, point out some things that need to be changed. And, it, and as a pastor, as a preacher, I just want to say something at the beginning so you, do, you guys you know, don't point the fingers at me. If God points out something on your heart, don't blame me for that, okay? There's a lot of stuff in this book. I mean, there's going to be a lot of tests in here. It's going to ask you the question, how are you doing in this? How are you doing in that? How are you doing in that? And if it starts to get a little uncomfortable, don't get mad at me, okay? <laughs> because I'm going to be going through the same process that you are. There's things in here that are going to be good for us to look at. Some of them might be a little bit uncomfortable, though. How will you respond? I hope that you'll respond in humility, letting the Holy Spirit convict you. Because here's the idea. Knowing God should lead to a changed life. The book of 1 John teaches us that we can have a relationship with God. It teaches us some things that that relationship should look like, and it teaches us some things that that relationship shouldn't look like. But overall, this book is meant to encourage us. I don't want you to get the impression that this book is just going to, you know, get out the needle and start poking you in places. This book is meant to be an encouragement to those who are walking with God. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 13, 
John himself says that this book is written so that we may know that we have eternal life. The idea of going through this checkup is at the end to say that we're going to have a healthy walk with God, more healthy than when we started. And the point is that God wants us to have eternal life and wants us to grow in this relationship right now. That's why this book is written. I want to read for you now 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. And this is in your bulletin, by the way. You can follow along there if you want to. Starting right in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Do you notice all the words in there? We've seen him. We've heard him. We've touched him. The Apostle John was one of the twelve disciples. What that means is that he followed Jesus around for about three years of Jesus' public ministry. And during that time, he saw Jesus. He heard him. He touched him. He walked with him. And now the Apostle John is saying, you can have that relationship with Jesus as well. In, in the book, the Gospel of John, John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now what John is saying, that relationship with Jesus that I've had, I want you to know that you can have as well. With Jesus as the starting point, with Jesus as the center, we can start to figure out what this relationship with God should look like. Because a relationship with God is what we are created for. That word gets thrown out a lot, especially in evangelical circles. The relationship with God. When did you come to know Him? Things like that. But the truth of this book is that we can have that sort of relationship. We were created for it. In eternity, God wants us to live with Him forever. And right now on earth, He wants us to grow in our relationship with Him. It's it's an astonishing point and one that must not be missed as we start this, that God loves us so much that He wants us to be with Him now and always in this dynamic, awesome love relationship with Him. So as we go through this sermon series again, it's going to be like a a checkup for our souls. If we say we know Jesus, what should our lives look like? Because knowing God is just the beginning. It's meant to be the beginning of an eternity-long relationship. What should that look like? Now, we don't want to get legalistic about this. That's one of the cautions I want to give at the beginning as well. There's going to be some heart checks. But the answer isn't going to be simply to modify our behavior. The answer is to, to look at our hearts and to listen to God and say, God, what are you showing me about what's going on in my life? Because if we know God, it should evidence itself in the way that we love God, the way that we love other people, the way that we follow God's commands, things like that. But again, even as I say that, I'm reminded of the awesome privilege of knowing God. Again, if if we take a step back and think about it, the privilege of knowing the God who spoke the universe into existence, when you think about how massive the universe is and how tiny we are, it's comforting for us to know that God loves us. It says in Genesis that we were the crowning act of his creation, created in the image of God, created to know him and live with him forever. 
So I look at this book of First John with joy in my heart because I know that God loves me and wants a relationship with me. And he wants that for all of you as well. Okay, what I want to do now is I want to read 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. That's the, the rest of our section we're going to look at today. And I want to show you two important truths from those sections. Starting in verse 5. This is a message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. My first point today is that we can have forgiveness and fellowship. We can have forgiveness and fellowship. I want you to think of a man, uh, a wealthy man, who had only one son. Say his wife has already passed away. All he has left is this one son. And this one son, unfortunately, has kind of disowned his father. Gone off, lived his own life, doesn't return his dad's phone calls anymore, doesn't even read the letters that his dad sends. Now let's say that this man, this father, eventually dies, and the son gets word of it that his father has passed away, and that because the father still loved the son, gave him his whole estate in the will. So the, the son hears about this, he's kind of astonished that his dad would give this to him, and, and it's this massive estate full with servants and mansions and pools and, and everything, everything that he could need. The son simply needs to take what the father has given to him because of the father's great love for him. Everything has been prepared for that son to enjoy what belongs to his father. His father earned it and gave it to him as a gift. Now we were all estranged from our heavenly father. All of us have sinned. The Bible clearly teaches us that every single one of us has sinned. And what we earn from that sin is a punishment. And the punishment is death. Now you can think of that punishment in a couple of ways. One is you think about what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. They took that fruit that God said they weren't supposed to take. And as part of the curse that God sent down, he said, now you're, you're going to die eventually. Your bodies are going to wear down and you are physically going to die. But there was another part of that punishment, because remember what else happened to Adam and Eve then? They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, they had close, intimate fellowship with God. And God said, you can't live here anymore. He kicked him out, and he even, in this awe-inspiring vision, he said he placed an angel with a flaming sword guarding the entrance so that they couldn't get back into the Garden of Eden. What it teaches us is that sin not only leads to physical death, it also causes a spiritual separation from God that every single one of us experience. That distance that we feel from God is the result of sin. And eventually that sin, if left unchecked, will cause a spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God. 
That's the punishment that every single one of us has due to us for our sin. Romans 5.10 states that we were God's enemies. Now, maybe you came to church and you're thinking you, you hear a message of God's great love. And we'll get there. We'll get there very soon, actually. But we also need to know about God's holiness and his justice. God can't just look at sin and say, oh, that's okay, I don't mind. In fact, I think that we wouldn't want a God like that. Let me tell you why. Picture somebody, the closest person to you on earth, whoever that might be, a, a spouse, a child, a friend, whoever that might be, imagine that they're brutally murdered. And imagine that the police catch the guy who did it. And he's brought to trial. And the jury finds him guilty. And then the judge says, yeah, you're guilty, but I'm just going to look the other way on this one. You're free to go. How would you feel about that? The closest person to you was murdered. The man was convicted of murder. And he's set free by the judge who just wants to look the other way. We, we don't want that. We, even though we're not holy, perfect people, we have a sense of justice in us that knows that sin needs to be punished. How much more so the God of the universe when we think about all the times that we have offended him. Yet, as I mentioned, the Bible also teaches us that God loves us. And God loved us even as we had our backs to him. That's one of the fascinating things about the God of the, of the Bible is that it says he loves the world. And the world is the place where we sinful human beings, well, he loves us so much that he sent his son for us. He sent Jesus to rescue us from our sin. And when Jesus died on that cross, he took our death penalty, the penalty that we had rightly earned because of our sin. He took that upon himself, paid that penalty, so that anyone who comes to Jesus can have complete forgiveness of sins and eternal life. In verse 7 here, it talks about the fact that the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sins. In verse 9, it talks about the forgiveness that we can have, and it goes on to say that we can be purified from all unrighteousness. And then in verse 2, too, it talks about Jesus as our atoning sacrifice. Now, that word translated as atoning sacrifice is a notoriously difficult word to translate. Some of your versions might say propitiation there, which is a word that I would be shocked if anybody knew what that meant here, actually. I, it's a word that we don't even know what it means, yet the Bible translates it sometimes as that word. Um, what I'm about to say is perhaps an advanced theological concept, so it if what I'm about to say next goes a little bit over your head, that's okay. Um, I'm going to try to put a nice little bow on it at the end. But there's an important concept here wrapped up in this really difficult word. The word translated as atoning sacrifice literally refers to the sacrifices that were made in the temple and in the tabernacle in the Old Testament at the mercy seat. The, the word specifically refers to what happened at the mercy seat. So if you know your Old Testament well, what you know is that the, the people of Israel were sinful, yet God allowed for them to enter into his presence and to worship him. And it all centered around the temple. And even more specifically, it centered around what happened at the Holy of Holies inside that temple. And even more specifically than that, it's what happened at that mercy seat. And at that mercy seat on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices were offered. So you, again, you might remember this from your Old Testament. The people, there would be, there'd be offerings and the sins of the people would be placed on this animal, and then the animal was killed and brought into the Holy of Holies and offered at that mercy seat. 
And what would happen then would be that the sins of the people were forgiven so that they could be cleansed, so that they could continue to worship God and have fellowship with him. Now, the New Testament sheds a little bit more light on this. It says that those sins were actually only washed away temporarily. That's why this sacrifice had to be repeated constantly. In fact, every year that same sacrifice had to be repeated. So in the Old Testament, it was a temporary reminder of an outward cleansing so that the people could be forgiven and have fellowship with God. And, And when you think about it, the problem is how do sinners relate to a holy God? Well, they can't unless God makes the way. Okay, through that system of sacrifices at the temple, God made a way for his people to be made right with him temporarily. Now John tells us, as we read this word here in 1 John 2.2, John tells us that Jesus is that sacrifice. And it's actually pretty amazing in how many ways Jesus fulfills this. In the New Testament, we learn that Jesus is the temple, Jesus is the sacrifice, and Jesus is the mercy seat. Now, I said I was going to try to put a little bow on it. Here it is. I I hope you can understand this one. Jesus is the way that we are made right with God. We're sinners. God is holy. There's this huge problem. What can we do about it? We can't do anything about it, but God in his mercy sent Jesus Christ so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have fellowship with him, so that anyone who receives Jesus as Savior and Lord, anyone who gives their life to him, can be forgiven of sin, and can have an eternity-long relationship with him. A pastor friend of mine described what happened on the cross was that Jesus was both our substitute and our satisfaction for sin. He's a substitute in that he died for our sin. It wasn't his sin. Jesus didn't have any sin. He took our sin upon himself. He's the substitute for us. The penalty was put on him instead of us. And then he's the satisfaction in that the wrath of God is fully appeased. Again, we have to understand that part about God, that God is holy and that he will punish sin. And it's a dreadful thing to think about us dying and still being in our sins. But if we've received Jesus, our sins are forgiven, cleansed, wiped away. And according to chapter 2, verse 2, this offer is for the whole world. Think about that, the great love of God. Now, I talked about God on one hand as, yes, a God of holiness and justice, and and maybe you might be scared of that God, and and maybe we should be in one sense scared of him. But we also know that that same God who is holy and just is the same God who offers forgiveness to the whole world if we would but accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, give our lives to him, and live for him. This is what theologians call atonement. First five letters of the word atonement, A-T-O-N-E, we can be at one with God. We can have fellowship with God, a relationship with God. Because remember, that's what John is writing about in verse 3, chapter 1. He said, uh, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ we can have fellowship with God. Even though we're sinners, we can be made right with God. 
And it's interesting, John goes on to say that not only will we have fellowship with God then, but we'll also have fellowship with each other. As all of us come to Jesus, we're changed, we're transformed, and we have this fellowship with each other. And it's, it's amazing. I've seen this as I've traveled across the world. There's this instantaneous bond when you meet another follower of Christ. It's truly amazing. We can have fellowship with God and with each other. But that leads me to a question. What should our fellowship with God look like? My first point is that we can have forgiveness and fellowship. second question has to do with what should our fellowship with God look like? And the answer here, point number two, is that we are to walk in the light. We are to walk in the light. In verse 5 it says God is light. And I've just told you that we can have a relationship with him. If those two things are true, that God is light and that we can have a relationship with him, what does that mean? It means that if we want to be with him, we need to walk in the light. Any of you out there scared of the darkness? I have to admit that, well, as a kid, I'll, I'll just start there. As a kid, I was scared of the dark. My bedroom was on the main level, and the shower was downstairs. So sometimes, you know, I'd wake up, and it would still be dark, and I'd have to go downstairs to this dark basement, and I was scared. And I would, my goal was to get as quick as I could from the bottom of the steps into the shower. For some reason, I'd be safe when I was in the shower, but when I was out of the shower, I thought that somebody in the darkness was going to come and grab me. Uh, you know, for a long time, I, I just had that irrational fear of the darkness. And I think that if we're all honest with ourselves, we still have a little bit of discomfort with the dark. If you're walking home late at night, or maybe if you're in a, a strange city and it's dark, there's a little bit of discomfort there. Now, on the other hand, darkness can be comforting for some people. What do I mean by that? Think about people who commit crimes. When do they commit them? usually at night. If you read the Daily Journal, oftentimes you'll see something like somewhere between the hours of 11 at night and 7 in the morning, a garage was broken into on the 400 block of West Cavour, or whatever it is. You almost never see in there at 12.30 in the afternoon a garage was broken in. Why is that? Because criminals like the cover of darkness. It hides what they're doing. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have a love-hate relationship with the darkness spiritually. We hate it because it keeps us from God. It, it feels like there's a separation between us and God sometimes. But if we're honest with ourselves, and this is maybe one of those heart checks that I want you to think about, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we like the darkness because we feel like it hides our sin. If we sin, if we're doing something wrong, we don't want anyone to know about it, not even God, so we try to hide it in the darkness. What we're told to do about this, though, in this passage, is to walk in the light, where God resides. And light is obviously a spiritual metaphor for the perfection of God. God never does anything wrong. And if we're to do anything wrong, we step out of that light and into the darkness to do it. Yet we're called to walk in the light. And by the way, walking in the light... Another metaphor for Christian discipleship, for following Jesus. So you see how we're still talking about this subject of discipleship here in this series. We're called to walk in the light. If we are to have fellowship with God, we're to walk with him in the light, and we're to refrain from sin. But that's where it gets tricky. Because I've already said that we're all sinners, right? Every single one of us here is a sinner. I know that about you all because I've been stalking you and I've seen you sin. No, that's not true. Um, John himself in this passage says it twice. 
that we're all sinners. In verse 8, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Churches are not a place for people who think that they're better than others, people who think that we don't sin anymore, and we'll come together on Sunday mornings we don't have to deal with the rest of the people out there. That's not what this is. Church is a place for people who recognize that we are sinners and that our sin offends God. We all do it, yet we're not supposed to do it. If we claim that we don't sin, we deceive ourselves, yet we're told in chapter 3, verse 6, that no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. So you see how John kind of speaks of sin both ways. On the one hand, we all do it, but on the other hand, we're not supposed to do it. So which one is it? Should we expect to stop sinning? Or should we expect that we will keep on sinning? The answer is both. The answer has to do with our humility about sin. Proud people don't like to admit their sin. There's this funny story I came across this week. Famous preacher of old, Charles Spurgeon, came across a man who said that he didn't sin anymore. And Charles Spurgeon was so interested by this that he invited this man over to his house for dinner. He wanted to hear about this guy's life and how he didn't think he sinned anymore. And during the course of dinner, Charles Spurgeon took a glass of water and threw it in the guy's face. And the guy responded in anger. And and it's recorded that Charles Spurgeon said, Aha! The sinful man in you isn't dead. He had just fainted and could be revived with a glass of water. If we say that we don't sin anymore, we deceive ourselves. That's what John is saying. The Apostle Paul says a very similar thing in 1 Corinthians 4. He says that he doesn't judge himself anymore, that God is the judge of his sin. He says, even if I have a clean conscience, that doesn't make me innocent because I am not the one who judges myself. It's God who judges me. So even if you think you might be without sin, you shouldn't say it. Because we don't, we're not the judge. Even if I feel like I have a clean conscience, I don't say I've conquered sin. What I say is that, or here's my tip for you, to go to God and say, God, if there's anything in me that you don't like, that you don't approve of, that might be sin in my life, would you please show it to me because I don't want it in my life. We need to be humble enough to realize that we may be offending God and not even knowing it. That's why Paul said we don't judge ourselves. That's why John said if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. I would rather a person say, God, show me my sin, than a person say, I don't sin anymore. I would much rather have it that way. If we're walking in darkness, the solution is to let God shine his light on us. Now another warning here, that can be uncomfortable. If we're doing something wrong, we don't really like people pointing it out in us. Especially God. But we must not let sin fester on us. And listen to this. Noticing your sin is a good thing. Now, don't misunderstand me. Sinning is a bad thing. Okay, we got that straight, right? But noticing your sin is a good thing. Because that means that you're walking in the light. And if you notice your sin... John gives us some wonderful advice for what we can do in verse 9. He says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we have sinned, we confess it to God and he forgives us. Jesus Christ lives as our advocate 
it's like if, if the picture is that we're on trial and we've sinned, you know, we're just, it's like we're hanging our, our head in shame. God knows that we've sinned, but Jesus is standing next to us as our advocate, speaking to the Father in our defense and saying, forgive him, I died for that one. So when we sin, we shouldn't hide it. We should take it to God, confess it, and there we can receive forgiveness. We should confess our sin to God, and it might even be hel- it is even helpful to confess your sins to other people, to tell a trusted friend something that you've done so that they can give you some accountability in that. If sin costs Jesus his life, we should take it seriously. Some people are far too cavalier about sin, saying like, oh, everybody does it, or mine isn't so bad, or if it's all forgiven anyway, what's the difference? But the truth is, sin is a cancer. John wrote this letter, as he said in 2.1, so that you will not sin. The truth is, we have sin, but we must not continue to sin. Now, if that's confusing, don't worry. It's going to come up later in the book, and we'll address it again. Actually, a few times it's going to come up. But here's a helpful quote from the theologian David Jackman. The nearer I come to God, the more conscious I shall be of my own sin. The idea is that as we walk in the light, God's going to show us our sin. And what should we do? Should we go and run for the darkness again and cower there? No. We should confess our sin to God. Let him take care of it. Ask him to strengthen us to walk rightly with him. Because here's the wonderful part. God wants us to have a relationship with him. He wants us to be in the light. He knows that we're sinners, but he's done everything necessary for that sin to be taken care of, and he wants us to stay in that light. But that means we need to deal honestly with our sins. And we have an option here. We can either walk in the light, or we can walk in the darkness. We must not treat our relationship with God as a casual, do-whatever-feels-right sort of relationship with God. Although that's what the world teaches us, right? The world teaches us, find something that works for you, do what feels right, and stick with it. That's not what we say, though. We don't say, let's do what feels right to us. We say, let's do what is right in God's eyes. And we stick with that. So we're to walk with God in the light. We're to meet regularly with him. We're to live rightly with others. And the great news is, there's a couple pieces of great news actually. One, if we mess up, Jesus is there as our advocate and our sacrifice. And the other piece of great news is that God's on our side in this. He wants us to thrive in our relationship with him. Here's my conclusion. Everything has been prepared for us to walk with God. Everything has been prepared for us to walk with God. Now we simply need to walk in it. God wants us to have this strong, growing relationship with him. Now we need to walk in it. Now here's an interesting, interesting thing about light. If we're called to walk in the light, light continues to spread everywhere unless it is stopped. Light goes there, like, I can't keep running forever. I'll just, you know, naturally stop if I try to keep running. But light goes everywhere unless it is stopped. God doesn't stop his light from shining. He wants us to know him. He wants us to find him. 
What stops his light from shining is when we choose to live in the darkness. That's the only reason that we wouldn't be walking in his light is if we choose to walk in the darkness. And if we think about that, we can, we can see that happening in our lives. That sometimes we choose to do what's wrong instead of doing what we know is right. When we do that, that's called walking in the darkness. And what we need to do is confess our sins and get back into the light. So we are to listen to God's instruction. If we're doing a 100,000 mile checkup, we need to listen to the master technician. And as we go through 1 John, the master might have some tips for us. He might point out some sin for us. He might show us where we're walking in the darkness. He may have some difficult things to say. But we must listen. We should expect that we can know God and grow in our relationship with Him. And yes, sin is a problem. It'll talk about that here in this book. But everything has been prepared for us to walk with Him. There's a quote from a famous man. His name is John Newton. He used to be a slave trader. Then he became a Christian and and repented of his sinful ways. He looked at this Christian life in terms of who he used to be and who he felt like he should be. And he said, I am not what I ought to be but I am not what I once was. So he looked at at where he was and thinking about all that God called him to and he noticed how he fell short of that. He said, I am not what I ought to be. Yet he looked back at what God had pulled him out of and he said, I'm not what I used to be. God has rescued me from sin and he's strengthening me in this relationship with him. May we all continue to grow in our relationship with God. May we walk in the light May we be honest about our sins and may we live in and grow in the relationship that God wants us to have with him for all eternity and right now. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you want this relationship with us and you have done everything needed for us to live with you. We thank you, Jesus Christ, for what you did to die on the cross for our sins. And Lord, if there are any in here right now who are unsure if they've ever received Jesus as Savior and Lord, we just say to you right now that we know that we're sinners. We ask that you would forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ask to receive Jesus as Savior and we give our lives to you as Lord that we may follow you forever. Lord, for all of us, may we walk in the light. May we flee from sin. May we reject the darkness and grow in our relationship with you. Father, as we go through this sermon series, and even for the rest of our lives, we give you full right to point out what you want to point out in our lives so that we might grow in you and be the people you created us to be. And God, we praise you for your greatness, for your love, and for the relationship that we can have with you now and for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.